The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 69 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize all opinions expressed in the show on my own, and not that of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sense of intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment. I never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I personally hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So, before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So again, uh, I had a great time last week. I mean, there was a lot of great compliments on last week's show with the Vice President of Cybersecurity for the Institute of World Politics, Mr. Dean Lane. And, you know, a lot of respect for his service to our country, which I really love to see. And it made me really feel good. And I know it felt good to Dean, too. He really appreciated it. I mean, it was just a fantastic show. The way I see it, there's really two takeaways from last week's show. The first is that the Institute of World Politics has some really cool stuff going on over there. I mean, they got some really very cool offerings in the cybersecurity space. You know, I did some research before last week's episode, and uh, I got to tell you, they have this cyber statecraft certification over there. It's just really cool, man. That's how it's called, a Certificate in Cyber Statecraft. And I, I, I took a look at the, the internet. I just brought it up here in front of me. It says that the, the, the certificate reflects the increasing importance of the cyber domain to U.S. national security strategy. And it says case studies of cyber operations are presented in the overall national strategic context so that students can appreciate the challenges of bringing theories into practice. Bringing theories into practice. I'm going to get to that in a minute. Um, students will be prepared for careers in intelligence, counterintelligence, homeland security, and policy making. I think it's, you know, it says there is about four courses and as well as one free elective for a total of 20 credits that you get towards this certificate. And I think you mentioned uh, last week that they're building a master's degree. And I think some of this, uh, some of these uh, credits would go towards a master's degree if you got the certificate. And I was checking out the, the curriculum. There's, there's courses called Counterintelligence in a Democratic Society. Uh, there's one called Cyber Statecraft, of course, that's the, the title of the, their certificate. Then there's one Military Strategy Theory or, or Theory and Practice. 
then you got information operations and information warfare. Like you can take one or the other. Then there's a national security policy process. And then there's intelligence and policy. And then you get an elective, right? So you can take a variety of these different classes. But if you just look, looking at the names of the classes, um, these courses are very interesting. And the second takeaway is what they're teaching there, it's not just interesting and fun, but unlike a lot of other cert certificates out there, I think this certification can be very applicable to your career. You can actually use it. And if you're fascinated by geopolitical events like I am, and you're interested in cybersecurity, which obviously I think you are because you're listening to the show, I can't see how these types of courses wouldn't be of interest to, to someone like you. So, I mean, you can check it out over at uh, www.iwp.edu, and uh, they give you all the information there. There's a ton of stuff to look at. But I love it, man. It's just, it's just really intriguing. It's captivating. I mean, the intersection of politics and cybersecurity and business, right? That's actually what's going on here. And it's very applicable to your career and what you're doing, uh, especially if you want to pivot, if you want to pivot into uh, this space in any way. These, this type of certification, I think, can be very helpful. Um, you can actually do something with it. You can do something. You know, it's, it's, isn't that a novel idea? Getting a certificate that's actually useful, right? Getting some return on your investment. I mean, you can actually do something with it. Do something with what you learn at the IWP. You know, I'm very interested in these classes. I'm going to continue to find out more about this stuff. And uh, I mean, you can use these courses, I think. You know, when you talk about cybersecurity, the policy is a huge piece of this. Policy is a huge piece. I mean, you can affect positive, meaningful change in some of these roles that are out there. I mean, and these roles are responsible for everything from crafting national security policy to building robust intelligence programs to enhancing the efficacy of your cybersecurity operations in a Fortune 500 company. I mean, you could use it for a variety of different stuff, right? So we need more of these types of educational opportunities for cybersecurity professionals. And if you like me, if you, if you really have your ear to the ground on what types of curriculums are out there, they're popping up everywhere in universities all around the country. You know that it's, it's really hard to find certificates and master's degree programs that will be useful. And what's even more exciting about this specific certificate is I believe you'll be able to use them for a master's degree. Uh, and I, I mean, whether it's intelligence or um, cyber statecraft, <laughs> it sounds pretty cool, man. Uh, I'm digging it. I'm definitely digging it. Um, you know, I got, I got to say this, you know, I just, I, I started thinking about this as I was reading through the curriculum and I didn't know whether I was going to go over this or not, but I see that these universities around the country are throwing these curriculums together from these pre-existing courses and calling it, you know, a cybersecurity degree or a cybersecurity certification. And it's just pains me to see this happening, you know? I mean, it pains me to see them doing this without consulting with true professionals and practitioners in the industry because there, there are unintended consequences from doing this. I mean, a few things, right? So there's, in a, in a sense, that I don't, I don't, they're not really victims or anything. I don't want to say victims, but there's people out there taking courses and the students out there who have expectations, right? Certain expectations of what the, what the end result and the return on their investment is going to give them. They're spending their hard-earned money. And you know how it goes. Often people are borrowing money. 
and you know, strap hanging themselves for years to come with student loans for an education that didn't teach them anything and that they can actually use in the real world. And you know, that's a travesty, right? And because you know, you can call it cybersecurity, but you know, what's underneath the covers, right? What's there? What's behind the curtain, right? You go there and you take these courses. You got to take a really hard look at some of these courses that you're taking. Be specific. I mean, I could line up, you know, five different cybersecurity programs from five different universities, and I can guarantee you they're not going to look anything alike. So that, that that's a little bit of a problem. You know, if I lined up their business degrees, I'm sure they'd be very similar in terms of, you know, what type of coursework you're looking at. So that's a problem. But I think the IWP is very different from those programs. And, and that's why I, I love the coursework that they have there. And they have great instructors. In fact, I, I think Darren Death actually is an instructor over there. I was just reading uh, before I saw his name associated with the, with the institute. I haven't talked to him about it. But Darren was on the show a few weeks ago with us. He's the chief information security officer over at ASRC Federal. And uh, he's a good example of some of the true practitioners that they have teaching the coursework over there at the IWP. And not someone who never worked a day in cyber, right? Never worked a day in the security industry in their life and just tweaked a few courses and put it together and called it the cybersecurity program and then started marketing it. You know, as the, oh, this is the, you know, one of the top rated cybersecurity programs in the country, seemingly just to take advantage of the talent crisis. And there's a huge market out there, right? I mean, they know there's a lot of jobs out there. People are going to be looking for jobs and they need to educate and train these people. You can't just throw a whole bunch of classes together. You got to put some effort behind it, you know? So anyway, I don't want to digress too much, but I just, I just had to get that out there. I mean, it just bothers me sometimes that some of these educators and they're, you know, well-meaning and, you know, obviously, but, you know, they need to seek advice on these programs. They need to seek advice from, you know, people in the industry. But, uh, but getting back on point, it was a great show last week with Dean Lane. He's got tons of diverse work experience. You know, he served in our great military. He's worth both as a practitioner and a consultant in the cybersecurity field. He's owned his own business, and he's a really smart guy. It was a lot of fun to have around. So if you haven't heard the show yet, take a listen when you get a chance. Tune in to last week's episode with Task Force 7 Radio. That's episode number 68 with the Vice President of Cybersecurity for the Institute of World Politics, Mr. Dean Lane. So make sure you check out the TF7 Podcast Library on your favorite playback medium this week because we dropped January's Encore episode last week. And the episode is called Why Organizations Can't Patch Their Networks with Kareem Tuba, the CEO of Kenneth Security. And you look, it's one of my favorite episodes, and that's why I put it up there as the, as the encore for January 2019, because Kareem is one of the smartest guys in the business, man. He's smart. The guy is wicked smart. And, you know, what he's got to say on this episode resonates with everyone in the business, because patching vulnerabilities is probably, it's got to be in everyone's, you know, top three material risks, right? So everyone tunes in to listen to the episode to see what he's got to say, because no one is immune from this problem. No one. No one is immune from this problem. This problem hits everybody. And when you hear Kareem talk about it, speaking in a common lexicon of risk, it just makes so much sense. The guy's very sensible. He's, he's really smart. And he says it in a way that you can understand and apply what he says. And it's, it's just it's a, it's a great episode. That's Kareem Tuba, the CEO of Kenneth Security, talking about why organizations can't patch their networks on this month's Encore episode of Task Force 7 Radio. 
So this is why it's important to subscribe too, folks. I mean, you get notifications when we drop the Encore episode and the other TF7 extras in the library. I know everyone loves their Tuesday morning playback fix of TF7, but we're adding content on other days now, so make sure you subscribe so you know when we're going to drop those TF7 extras and whenever the Encore episode drops, because I don't have a schedule for the Encore yet. I just kind of put it up there once a month, you know, I just have an Encore episode that I think people will enjoy if you haven't heard it, you knew, or you knew a listener and you haven't gone that far, that far back in the library yet. Uh, I like to bring these sort of things up in front and, and center. And so the last, the, you know, December, last Encore did very, very well. People loved it. So if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe just someone sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. You can find Task Force 7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at TaskForce7Radio.com, and of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world at VoiceAmerica.com. So all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 Radio fix. We're everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you get all your options. Check us out, TF7 Radio, playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. So we've got a great show for you this week. We're going to have Chuck Brooks on the show with us this evening. Now, Chuck is the principal market growth strategist for General Dynamics Mission Systems for Cybersecurity. That is one heck of a title. He is also part of the adjunct faculty at Georgetown University's Applied Intelligence and Graduate Cybersecurity Programs, where he teaches courses on risk management, homeland security, and cybersecurity. That's just, you know, totally cool, right? I mean, that's, you know, that those are some great programs. And again, it's kind of in line and a little bit of what we had last week. We're pivoting a little bit to a little bit more, even outside of intelligence, to some of the other sort of homeland security issues around cybersecurity. And LinkedIn just named Chuck as one of the top five tech people to follow on LinkedIn. Thomson Reuters just named him as one of the top 50 global influencers in risk and compliance. And the IFSEC just named Chuck as the number two global cybersecurity influencer in 2018. So in both 2017 and 16, he was named Cybersecurity Marketer of the Year by the Cybersecurity Excellence Awards. And Chuck also serves as a cybersecurity expert for the network at the Washington Post. He's a visiting editor at Homeland Security Today, as well as a contributor to Forbes magazine. And he's done so much more. If you want to check out his, his whole bio, check out the website, folks. There's a lot going on there. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Chuck Brooks. Chuck, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Thank you for having me, George. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so you have a really interesting background. I was only able to mention a few of the accolades and awards that you recently received and what you're doing today. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your career? Sure, sure. My background's sort of a, a, a mix. I'm, I'm in the pillars, I guess, of uh, government, industry, media, and academia. Uh, I came to, I'm from Chicago, but I came out to uh, Washington DC like everyone else to, to start a career in, in, uh, in government and politics. And uh, I was lucky, I befriended uh, a former deputy director of the CIA and head of DIA, Lieutenant General uh, Daniel Graham served as a mentor for me, and then I, I got my first role in government as being assistant to the director of Voice of America under uh, President Reagan. And since then, I've served like three or four times in, in government, including uh, eight years on the Hill with the late Senator Arnold Specter, and I was the first uh, 
legislative director for science and technology at the Department of Homeland Security when it was created. In industry, you know, of course, I've been with a lot of large corporations, including uh, Xerox and SRA, and, uh, and currently with General Dynamics Mission Systems, which is a great company, and, and I'm uh, involved with their their cyber growth uh, uh, program, and uh, it's very exciting for me. But and the other aspect of, of my uh, work uh, is is in academia now. I, I I used to teach at John Hopkins in Homeland Security. Now I'm teaching at Georgetown uh, Risk Management, Homeland Security, and Cybersecurity. So it's a uh, Sort of a dual career, career attack uh, right now, and, and it's exciting for me. That's awesome. You don't have so many diverse experiences, and you've done so many different things. How did you get into cybersecurity? How did it come up? Well, it, it actually came up when I was at Department of Homeland Security, and this is in the you know the early years, 2004. I was one. Of the, I was actually called a plank holder there because I was one of the first hires by uh, Secretary Ridge. And so, uh, uh, we basically our mission was a CBRNA, you know, a chemical, biological, rad, nuke. And, and cyber was sort of an afterthought, but we created a cyber division, and, and at the time it was it was not uh, uh, well funded, and it was a part of it. But uh, it, it seemed very interesting to me, and the fact that everything was getting more and more connected at the time, and as you can see right now, the how DHS has evolved, where cyber is really one of their biggest missions. But when I started, it was one of the smallest missions. So that's when I started, and um, after that, uh, I was addicted, and I just became a, a cybersecurity junkie. Uh, it sort of it was integrating all I did and every every work uh, job I had and every project. So, um, you know, those were the days it started, but uh, it continues. So, like a lot of us, you had experiences in both the government and the private sector. I'd like to ask you, what are the major differences, in your opinion, between working in cybersecurity roles in the government as opposed to working cybersecurity roles in commercial and private space? Well, there, there's several. First of all, the, the role in the government, the missions are different. You're, you're, you're dealing with programs, you're dealing with protecting networks, um, and you're also dealing with a different uh, uh, role of not worrying about uh, a profit. In industry, it, it's really about, you know, you could have great uh, interest in cybersecurity, but the bottom line for them is basically how much profit do I have? Does it risk my reputation? If I get breached, will it affect me? In the government, the risks are much higher because you're dealing with classified material a lot of times, you're dealing with programs, and you're dealing with uh, um, you know, sensitive materials that could uh, disturb uh, things, particularly with critical infrastructure and things like that. So there's a significant difference there. And uh, I think that uh, they both can learn from each other. Um, for one thing, the, the, the private sector has much more robust research and development capabilities. They spend a lot more money on, on learning new technologies. The government tends to, to borrow from the private sector, which they should, but they should also invest more in R&D. And I think uh, that the industry needs to look more like government, saying that it's not all about the bottom line. It's really about uh, protecting data and protecting people. And so if you get sort of that mix, I think you get the best uh, outcome. So despite these different roles in the mission, I, uh, I think that a lot of the people that make this transition, you know, have, this, have some challenges. They have some challenges uh, adopting to new cultures in the private space, usually from government to private and not necessarily from private to government, but of course it does happen too. It happens, I guess, you know, happens the same way when you're trying to adopt to a new culture. In your view, what is the biggest challenge people face when they're transitioning from the government to private space? Um, I think the whole process is different. Um, you're, you're really, you're very much focused on policy and procedures uh, in, in the government side. And uh, you also have a lot of eyes looking at everything you do. When you get to the, 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 the commercial side, it's usually, it has been in the past directed mostly by the IT shop, particularly with cybersecurity. Now it's changed you now with, the, with the, the, the advent of the CISOs and others getting more power, but uh, 
uh, it's more of a culture of the company that matters than, than, than basically the, the policy of the issues or the, or the framework of the issues. So it's different by, by company to company. You know, certainly defense and aerospace companies are more in line with government and uh, adopt accordingly in procedures. But, but most companies out there in the world have a, a total different attitude and different, different way of operating than, than, than those inside the Beltway. You know, you mentioned defense. I think uh, a few years ago there was this big push for the militarization of cybersecurity in the private space, and it caused sort of a great deal of turmoil. And uh, uh, especially for people that were coming out of the government that really didn't adopt to the culture properly, and there were several sort of embarrassing flaps that happened that were very public, and and the movement sort of died. But did what do you think about the the militarization of cybersecurity? and how that works out. I mean, I think everybody needs to be judged on an individual basis and not the fact that they come from a certain agency or a department. Yeah, I think the U.S. Cyber Command is sort of changing that. You know, you're right. What department and what agency or what, you know, military service was, was all independent. And I think now uh, uh, part of the effort in government is sort of uni- to unify it and have common, common uh, you know, language, common procedures, common exchange of information. And uh, you know, when you're talking about militarization, the first thing I thought about is offensive cyber. You know, uh, we've always had those capabilities, but we're now seeing a lot of, uh, you know, from our adversaries of, of those type of capabilities. So I think uh, just like everything else, uh, if you're looking at militarization, cyber is a form of, of warfare. And uh, when you're in the government, you have to look at all aspects, including uh, the implications of, of actually being an attacker or, or a defender. And, and, and the commercial side, really, it's more about defense. Right, right. So you, you have a widespread network. Your network is huge. You talk to a lot of people. Uh, you're involved in, in a lot of organizations. What organizations are you affiliated with now in the cybersecurity world, and what are you doing? Gosh, you know, it's, it's almost uh, too many to list, but uh, I'm, I'm very involved with... <laughs> it's uh, a lot. I've read about it. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm an FCA, of course. I'm in the Cyber the Security Committee. Uh, IFSEC, um, I'm with the Quantum Alliance, I'm with Cyber Avengers, I'm a writer for Forbes, an editor, a visiting editor of Homeland Security Today, uh, involved with uh, the EC Council Global Advisory Board, and, um, and I'm also involved now with MIT, and I'm also involved with uh, 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 Techstars, uh, uh, mentoring uh, a group of, the, of companies and uh, projects to come for, uh, for innovation in the Air Force. So. That keeps me busy aside from my regular job. Right, I bet it does. Yeah. Tell us about the mentoring. I mean, that sounds really interesting. Is that just for Air Force uh, uh, people? or? Yeah, well, my mentoring activities, I do that uh, aside, too. I have a, a lot of people I've worked with, particularly because I, I teach, and a lot of them are students. Right. But, uh, um, you know, other people, too, in, in their cyber careers and, and actually the government relations careers I've been involved with. But the, the formal part of, of Techstars, and I'm really new to it, I've just sort of joined it, is looking and evaluating trying to help startup companies sort of uh, acclimate to the to not just the, the private sector, but also to the market, government market, and also advise them on how to get through the sort of uh, the, the many obstacles of acquisition and other things that will that, face them. So yeah, mentoring is, is really uh, rewarding for me, so I, I really enjoy it. Tell us a little bit about your role as an adjunct faculty over there at uh, Georgetown University. Great university. Yeah, no, I love it. Um, you know, it's uh, – I've already uh, taught three courses. My first one was risk management, and second one was home and technologies. And, and students are, are wonderful. And I'm, I'm now part of a new program, a graduate program, where we'll be offering cybersecurity uh, a master's degree. And also, I'm teaching a, a, a course on, uh, uh, online about blockchain uh, coming up next year. 
too. So, but that, yeah, the students are fantastic. A lot of them uh, um, are actually in government or in industry um, and doing it part-time graduate work, which makes it really rewarding because it's a two-way street that I learned from them. But uh, I think there's nothing more satisfying than, than teaching. And if I had another life, I, I think it would be really fun to be a, a full-time faculty member at a college or university. It would be a great <laughs> life for me. So, Chuck, we've got to take a little time to go to a commercial break, but we're right back to talk more about other cybersecurity issues, some emerging risk. I want to get your, your take on information warfare and some other issues. So, hey, if sure. you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our listeners that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for a few minutes with some words from our sponsors and we'll be right back with our special guest, the Principal Market Growth Strategist for General Dynamics Mission Systems for Cybersecurity, Mr. Chuck Brooks. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, the Principal Market Growth Strategist for General Dynamics Mission Systems for Cybersecurity, Mr. Chuck Brooks. So Chuck, I wanna start off this segment by talking about emerging threats and how concerned people should be 
about them? And you've, in your view, what are the biggest emerging threats and how serious are they? Well, I think that there's several. I mean, uh, first you have to look at the, at the, the landscape and why there are some more emerging threats. And, and the two main factors are one is the, the, the surface space for attack is getting larger with the integration of Internet of Things, you know, 50 billion sensors, et cetera. And so it, it provides more opportunities for it. Uh, the other thing is that, uh, that the, the attackers are becoming much more sophisticated. They've actually been able to share tools. They've, they've stolen stuff from, from some of our agencies. Um, and uh, they're coordinating. So you have uh, the dual fact of more attack surface and more sophisticated threats. So uh, uh, the other factor I put into there is the technologies too. With uh, Just like us, uh, the bad guys, uh, have access to uh, machine learning and other technologies, uh, artificial intelligence eventually, uh, but that, that make their job of finding uh, uh, vulnerabilities much easier. And uh, you're dealing with a, a landscape that includes not just the, 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 the hacker and the, and the hobbyist hackers, but uh, you're dealing with uh, state-sponsored uh, nations and organized crime. So it's a, it's a very, very dangerous environment out there. So some people say that the Internet of Things is probably one of the most serious emerging threats that we have. Um, we get various different opinions on that. What say you about IoT? Yeah, it is a, a dangerous emerging threat because, it, it, like I said, it, it's, it wasn't – the Internet, you know, as Ben Surf often says, and he just said recently in an op-ed, is it wasn't built for security. And now you're connecting all these other things to the Internet, and uh, so it makes it a million times more vulnerable – and the other thing with the Internet of Things and devices and appliances, et cetera, there's no standards. So there's no security really built into them or, or, or you know, what, what manufacturers, where are they coming from, you know, uh, so that they can actually embed uh, stuff in if they wanted to. And so it's very difficult to protect. So, uh, uh, yeah, it is a real problem, and it's, it's also affecting supply chain um, as you have now uh, a lot of different uh, uh, connectivities to your, your, your supply chain through the Internet of Things and other people doing stuff that can – bring in contaminate the system so it's it's a very serious threat how about mobile what do you think about the, the mobile space and and you think this is going to be a more of an attack vector than it has been in the past well yeah yeah i think it's particularly as we move to 5g and uh, more and more people of course are, are operating doing their work off of mobile um and so unless you sort of uh, uh separate the system from your personal and your work um it's easily uh, cross-contaminated so you have uh, uh, a real easy way to, to get into this to uh, you know your, your personnel and your business at the same time. So mobile is definitely a problem. And uh, again, I, I think it comes down to a question of cost. Do consumers using mobile want to pay for the extra security? Uh, you know, it could be made much stronger and hardware enforced. But uh, you know, until then, they're going to be using VPNs and in software, uh, which which uh, uh, adversaries sometimes and, and usually do overcome. So we just had a great episode with some of the executives from CyberGRX. They came on the show and they were talking about third-party risk. In your estimation, how high up on the prioritization list of material risk is the relationships with third parties? Um, I'd say it's near the top. And I think, uh, uh, you know, if you're looking at the government, I think they'd sort of echo that too. There's a report that just came out from the General Accounting Office. On, on those threats. And that, again, it goes back to supply chain. But, you know, for attackers, it's always a, the, the weakest point of entry uh, or where, there, where there's, there's the least amount of security. And so uh, uh, when you have a, a variety of third parties linked into a network, um, they, can, they can easily go through them. And uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be through a very high-tech tech way of doing it. Uh, usually it's spear phishing or phishing, 
where they uh, you know find out where there's a, an, an easy entry and, and they get that one person to open it up and that's all it takes. Switching gears from emerging, you know, uh, emerging threats and some of this other emerging technologies. I, do you think the insider threat, this is sort of off topic that we were, you know, from the stream that we were just talking about, because this is not an emerging threat, but do you think the insider threat gets the attention it deserves even today? Absolutely not. It's the, uh, behind phishing and social engineering. It is a number two um, reason for, for breaches. And, uh, you know, it could be a lot of reasons. There's, there's, it could be disgruntled employee. It can be someone planted in, in an organization. Uh, the problem is it's, it's also very difficult to detect. And, uh, you know, and, and someone had administrator uh, privileges and leaves the company, they may leave with a lot of documents. But it's, it's not getting the attention it deserves. And I think it, you know, probably has to be looked at in terms of, of how we better uh, address the threat, you know, through policies, automation, and uh, per, per, perhaps, you know, some sort of a, a behavioral analytics to detect those kind of uh, threats, which are very difficult. Right. So there's a lot of challenges in this space. In your estimation, what are the biggest challenges that we face in cybersecurity today? Is it the talent crisis? Is it the technology, the, the solution sets that are just coming out every single day, <laughs> regulation that's going crazy? I mean, what do you think is the biggest challenge? You know, I, 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 it'd be easy to say all of the above, but, uh, you know, I, I still think probably the biggest challenge right now, uh, media challenge, is the lack of uh, talent resources. You know, just because it's it's come, you know, there's so many companies out there that just don't have the ability to find and hire people, and it's not just companies; it's government too. So that that until you rectify that issue, it's it's going to be always a, a problem. And they're trying to do that through a lot of automation and other things. But you know, the fact is that you know computers are hacked every 39 seconds, and a million dollars is stolen every minute, and 146 billion records are going to be stolen in the next five years. So it's not working, and. Uh, so, uh, you know, I look at technology as a, probably a two-way sword because the bad guys have two, but, uh, you know, we have to invest in it. And, uh, you know, I think the average, average uh, CISO is dealing with probably 70 different security vendors, which makes it difficult, too. So uh, it's, there's no real, uh, you know, uh, panacea for, for fixing the problem. It's just going to probably get worse. That's interesting. You know, you brought up it works both ways uh, for the organized crime guys and they stay – yeah, as far as the as far as the talent shortage goes, do you think they're experiencing a talent shortage too? You know, I, I don't think they have they have to have as many people doing it. Right. First of all, if you're looking at state sponsored, you've got you know thousands and thousands of you know, particularly in China of military personnel dedicated to doing this and stealing you know IP and stealing OPM records, etc. Uh, I think more with with the you know with the sort of Eastern Europe, you have a lot of guys that are just sort of talented thinkers, you know sort of a, a lot of organized crime, uh, some state sponsored, but you know, they, they think out of the box and, and the, the problem is that there's no repercussions. There's no global enforcement uh, for these hackers against these hackers. So, you know, there, it doesn't take as many. I mean, it, you know, as you, you know, I, I've seen demonstrations where, you know, kids without a high school, you know, or high school dropouts are just good gamers were able to, to reach into sophisticated systems in minutes. So, right. you know, right. it's, it's much more difficult to defend than, than, than be an attacker. Yeah, we have to be right every day. They don't have to be right once, right? So Exactly. Yeah, and it's it's really, really difficult. Um, you know, when I first started mentioning the talent crisis in the show, I had a bunch of people, you know, yell at me, hey, what talent crisis? What are you talking about? There's no talent crisis. Oh, what, do you, what do you have to say about that? Well, I mean, there's a, I think in the U.S. alone, there's like a 300,000 uh, person shortage. Yep. And, uh, you know, it's it's a huge talent uh, crisis because, and they're trying everything, it's because a lot of people don't want to go into cybersecurity at least in this new generation, and, and that's the problem. 
And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of efforts being made with companies and, and academia and others to reach out and do certifications and train, you know, but it's a catch-up game. And, uh, the, you know, the best people are, are, are poached, and, and there's not a lot of continuity uh, with companies and stuff. So it's a, it's a real problem. So do you see any interesting technologies out there? Right now, like, do you see anything that really catches your eye? I mean, there's stuff coming out all the time, and I think it, you know, companies and you know are struggling to figure out what technologies are really the best solution for some of the gaps that they have. What do you see? Yeah, you know, I mean, I look at some of the more futuristic things, and, and you know, the, the the cognitive technology, the artificial intelligence, and they're down the line, but they look promising. There's so much money being spent on it right now. And I think eventually that's going to be really uh, everything will be automated. It'll be human computer interface. So that's really exciting. And we, we, we rely on machine learning now. We do a lot of that, not that real uh, artificial intelligence, pure intelligence yet. I know IBM and others and Microsoft are in, in D3 are, are putting a lot of money into that kind of stuff. The second thing I'd say probably is, is that we thought it'd be much more distance, but it's still here, is, is quantum computing and supercomputing. You know, quantum computing is, is getting closer. I know we do, could do quantum encryption now. And, uh, you know, that could be basically a game changer in terms of actually we're talking about solving the personnel crisis. So those kind of things. I mean, there's a lot of other interesting technologies, of course, you know, the predictive analytics and a lot of that relates back to machine learning and artificial intelligence itself. But, yeah, I would say that, that that's, those are the most exciting things for me. And, and you know, and, and every day there's a new development to watch. So I think one of the things that people overlook when they're, when they're talking about these new technologies and they're implementing them so fast is that some of these technologies actually introduce additional risk into the environment that professionals aren't thinking about, you know, when they implement them. They're just thinking about what these technologies can do and what kind of problems they can solve. But there's also risk associated with those technologies. Do you find that uh, in the industry? Do you see that or what's your opinion? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's several reasons. I, I think you're, you're exactly right. I think there's several reasons for one. One is, is that sometimes that the people that you're talking, this again goes back to the shortage, just really don't understand what the technology does. And second of all, they have an orchestration problem usually with, with a lot of other things they have in their networks that some may not, uh, you know, uh, work congruently with what they're putting in. And I think the third factor is, is, is what we're just talking about. The technology uh, can be used against you. And uh, there's vulnerabilities, and, and those vulnerabilities are exploited by the other side too, uh, particularly if you're relying too much. You know, in a cybersecurity, like I say, it's, you know, people process the technology. And it really is that. I mean, it's, it's, it's defense in depth that's, you know, you have to have a, a you know, cyber hygiene uh, is a priority uh, for your people in there, but you also have to have the right, you know, CISOs and the right, right CIOs operating the systems, and then look at the technologies where they're best integrated. Because if they're not integrated properly, they become risk and, and can take down a whole system. All right, folks, we've got to take another short break to hear from our awesome sponsors, but don't go away. We'll be right back with the Principal Market Growth Strategist for General Dynamics Mission Systems for Cybersecurity, Mr. Chuck Brooks. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover life cycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, the Principal Market Growth Strategist for General Dynamics Mission Systems for Cybersecurity, Mr. Chuck Brooks. So, Chuck, I want to shift gears once again. I want to talk a little bit about information warfare. I mean, well, let's start out. Let's benchmark first. Do you think the United States is in a cyber war with China and Russia right now? Um, it depends how you define cyber war. I, you know, if you define it as a, is basically a, a Pursuing uh, weaknesses and, and detecting attacks, yes, uh, that's been going on for probably a decade or more. Um, we're constantly testing each other, seeing where the vulnerabilities are, where critical infrastructure is. So that's that's a war for for you know like more like a chess game, and uh, that's you know typical of also of diplomacy and is typical of, of uh, a regular military action. So in that that sense, yes. Would it be more accurate to describe it possibly as a cold cyber war? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's cold. That's a good way of saying it. I mean, <laughs> this stuff happens, and, and it's not just our adversaries. It's everyone out there looking, you know, to see what everyone else is doing. It's, it's also cyber espionage. It's, it's uh, uh, looking at, uh, you know, where the, the vulnerabilities are in, in, in smaller countries, how you influence maybe, a, uh, you know, an overthrow or, or taking out, the, you know, the power plant or something, which has happened, by the way. So, yes. I think most experts – that have been on the show have basically said, hey, look, you know, we, we, we have a lot of confidence in our offensive capabilities if it ever came down to an all-out cyber war. But we are uh, very vulnerable because every facet of our society is connected to the Internet. And, and all, you know, from especially business, and you just, you know, you mentioned before power plants and, you know, biochem and just basically everything um, is when, what's it going to take for everybody to wake up to this and, and, and basically do something before the catastrophic event happens? You know, I think it, it's going to take something major, unfortunately. Uh, you know, it, it, we, we tend to sort of uh, 
forget things very quickly. You know, every time there's, we're, we've got, we're becoming sensitive to these huge breaches. Ah, just another breach, you know. Marriott's several million records. Ah, okay, OPM, you know, it doesn't matter. But I think it, if it, it, it affects something like what you just mentioned, the grid, where power is taken out, where people's lives are actually affected, uh, where they find out they can't access the internet, their, 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 maybe their electricity and their gas isn't working the same as it was, that, that'll be a wake-up call. And unfortunately, that, that could happen very easily. Yeah, I mean, after Hurricane Sandy here around the, the, the New Jersey, New York area, it was, it, it was rough. It was rough. I mean, within a few days, people were pulling weapons on each other at gas stations. Gosh. Yeah, it was crazy. And after, you know, I remember I would get up every morning, early in the morning, you know, four or five o'clock in the morning, uh, you know, I'd be gone by five, definitely. I mean, out of the house, you know, around 4.30 in the morning, traveling to Pennsylvania, drive all the way out, Try to get try to get gas so I could run generators so my family would be you know um, have heat and and they would, and, and uh, you know some electricity in the house and take care of my my kids so I think a lot of people were doing that and um, and you have all kinds of crazy things happen it's like the governor of Pennsylvania comes out and says oh you're moving you know uh, fuel across the state line illegally it's not even crazy there's people that need help right and he's worried about that it was nuts it was absolutely it was absolutely crazy and I don't think people understand how vulnerable we are to those types of events through, through a cybersecurity attack. Do you think the American people realize the repercussions of what a full-scale cyber war looks like? Um, I don't think they have any idea. And, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff has been simulated. Um, and I know DOD has a great idea of these things. But uh, um, American people are, like I said, they basically uh, walled themselves off. You know, it's, a, it's a business as usual. Um, you know, we've become very dependent on our electronics and our devices, uh, yet we don't pay attention to what could really change our lives in, in, in one instance. I mean, you couldn't even get gas cans when that, when that incident happened. I mean, you couldn't even get a gas can, let alone the gas. I mean, it was just nothing around. Um, scary scenario. And actually, when you talk about that, there's another scenario that's sort of, you know, looking at, there's, there's, of course, these task force on protecting critical infrastructure. And... It's not just cyber, it's physical too. There's, there's a real threat of an EMP attack and not just from nuclear, you know, electronic magnetic pulse. It could be a you know, solar flare from the sun. It could take out all our electronics that happened in the, in the early 1900s before we had the electronics. <laughs> and, right. uh, or it could be um, actually a non-nuke bomb uh, detonated in the right place. We're so dependent on our, on our communications and, and our commerce and our health, everything we do, is so dependent upon the internet and their connectivity that uh, we're, we're vulnerable not just in cyber, but also with physical and, and EMP and other things. So it's, it's a very scary world. Is, the, is there anything like the average uh, American citizen can do uh, that you think, I mean, other than, you know, like if you want to say harder than their own, <laughs> you know, their own networks at home. I mean, you know, I, what, what do you think, the, what, what, what kind of advice do you have for just the average person out there, not necessarily a corporation, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think, you know, you talk about hardening. It's very difficult to do. I mean, obviously, you want to have uh, ways to communicate to your family and loved ones if something does happen. So you have to have, uh, uh, you know, I remember there was an earthquake here in, in the Virginia area a few years back. And, of course, no, no one knew what it was because, you know, maybe there's another attack on the Pentagon. And the, the phones got overloaded, so no one could call and, uh, uh, or, or do email. Uh, but text, for some reason, works. So there's a lot of new... Sort of technologies and interoperable technologies and backup technologies are being put in place by DHS and others looking at these scenarios. 
so those, those I think, the best thing for, for people that are listening to you is to learn about them and learn how you can sort of reinforce your way and have, and I don't want to talk like a survivalist, but it's good to always have a, uh, enough batteries, enough food, and enough uh, 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 plans to do when something does happen. You know, we, we looked at that at, um, after 9-11, um, you know, what you do happens during the bomb, where you go and what you do. You have to do that with cyber, too. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, uh, even my, my wife wouldn't would, would laugh at me because I prepare so much for these types of things, you know, and, and you know, being a former Secret Service agent, they ingrain that into your head. That's all you do. <laughs> prepare for the worst at all times. Prep, prep, prep. And, you know, I think, you know, and, and look, it's just the training that kicks in. You're never going to lose that, um, that mindset. And I think, you know, a lot of people can make fun of that mindset you know, at most 99.9% .9 of the time, but when the bad day comes, right, when the bad day comes, you know, I think about, you know, after the hurricane, Goldman Sachs was the only building that had the lights on in Southern Manhattan. Right? <laughs> and, and the CEO has a picture of, you know, the, the building with its lights on and every other building in the entire island is, is, is black, is, is out, right? <laughs> and so I think the, I think the caption says, uh, I saw it on the internet, you know, nice, nice try, God, you know. <laughs> so, you know, it's very true. I mean, a lot of preparation went into uh, that beforehand because obviously, um, you know, they were able to uh, keep the lights on and, and keep their business going at a time where maybe other people weren't. Um, so... Preparation is one thing, business resiliency and continuity, obviously, um, when we get back to the corporate uh, environment. But a lot of, I think a lot that goes into having this robust and environment with a lot of rigor behind your processes and policies is the, is the intelligence-led function in your cybersecurity program. Because without it, you really don't know where to put the dollars to get the biggest bang for your buck. How important is it? How important is intelligence in for these cybersecurity programs to be successful? Oh, it's a critical element. You know, I mean, you really can't plan anything, including incident response or resiliency, without knowing what what you have, what's in your inventory, what the threats are, and 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 calculated to you know, what your investment needs to be for what you want to protect, what the crown jewels are. So it's 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 critical. And I think uh, you know, I think one of the things that has changed very slowly that needs to be is that. And more cybersecurity, and more people like like you, Secret Service, and more people that work in security that know are are basically know how to manage risk and, and to look for vulnerabilities. I'll be put in the C-suite in corporations, and and uh, so it's not typical business as usual, just looking at the bottom line where we could could bring more money for sales, but looking how we could uh, 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 be resilient and survive uh, worst case scenarios. And I think uh, with more CISOs taking elevated roles and more people. Uh, uh, with education in the C-suite, that could change. And it's changing slowly, but the, you know, intelligence-based capability cybersecurity needs to be uh, the first, first step. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, career management here, because you've, you've done a lot. You, I mean, you've, you've got so much experience uh, in the cybersecurity space. You've pivoted in your career uh, so much. There's a lot of young people that listen to this show trying to navigate a very sophisticated and complex cybersecurity space. Right? And it can be confusing. It can be really confusing. What recommendations do you have for those people who are seeking a career in cybersecurity or want to pivot into cybersecurity, uh, maybe from either tech or maybe a risk position or audit or whatever, I mean, whatever have you, what kind of recommendations do you have? Yeah, well, my, my first recommendation is, is uh, look what's out there. There's a lot of certifications out there that will, will give them, it depends what you want to do, whether it's CompTIA or whether it's uh, 
sons and others, but you know how 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 strong you want to to learn the subject matter. But you can get certified without having to go to uh, to get to grad cert, uh, certificate. Although I recommend that too. I think education, since the, the the field is changing so rapidly and there's so much innovation and so much exponential changes happening every day, it's hard to keep up. So you need you need to be, have a background in policy. You need to know how, how things operate. Plus, you need to know the coding, the technology, you know, uh, uh, see where, where things are going. So I do that. And I just attend a lot of events uh, and, and read a lot of things and listen to shows like this <laughs> where you can get informed opinions from people. And and uh, another big thing I recommend is, is stay involved in social media because there's, I think in this industry more than others, at least maybe just because I'm more exposed to it, I think there's so many people participating on LinkedIn on, uh, in, in groups and sharing information and data and threats and, and know that, that probably sometimes the best way to go to find out something that's happened or what I learned what I learned about a breach and, is go right to, to social media and there's like 60 experts that have the latest things posted you know whether it be a Krebs or someone else but it's just it's just amazing the amount of resources we have now online. Yeah it's huge and it's kind of refreshing to hear you say that because I think it is a very big need in cybersecurity. And Task Force 7 is a social network for cybersecurity professionals. And we know that people, professionals are more inclined, six times more inclined actually, to visit a vertical network than a horizontal network because they want to be around like-minded people. And, you know, to your point, a lot of people get their news from social media and a lot of people use social media to exchange ideas and create communities and solve problems. And we think this is going to be a huge huge, uh, huge program, uh, huge uh, company and, and sort of solving that, that problem and filling that gap. And so I can't wait to, uh, you know, tell everybody more about that. But that's refreshing to hear you say that. How, people, how can people follow you on social media? What social media platforms are you on now? Uh, well, I'm very active on, on LinkedIn. Um, and just go to, to Chuck Brooks. I've, I've uh, you know, connected to 30,000. They have another, uh, actually 55,000 people follow me right there. So just uh, follow me or send me an invite uh, if I can. Unfortunately, I have to delete people to take new people in. But uh, uh, that's the other thing. And at Twitter, at Chuck D. Brooks, I, I'm really pretty new to Twitter, but, you know, it's a different type of uh, medium. And it's still fun. There's groups of people there to influencers to deal with. And, and everywhere you, you, you uh, touch social media, you, you meet new people. And, you, and I think what's really interesting, and you said it with uh, is the information security community, it's not a competitive community. It's more of a collegial community and collaborative community, which I find refreshing having been in other parts of, uh, of, of work in my career. Uh, you know, people I meet uh, don't try to outdo each other. They try to share information and, and, and help each other because they realize that there's a shortage there's, and, and, and we're all sort of identified as, as very few people that are out there promoting and, uh, the socialization of cybersecurity, which is really important. Well, this is great. I encourage our listeners to look you up follow you on, on social media. I know I do. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. we got to do another show. I, you mentioned that uh, you, you were teaching uh, blockchain and, and crypto over at Georgetown. I want to do a show on that. I mean, okay. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I'd be happy to. And I appreciate it. Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest uh, topics and uh, ask that I get from the audience is around blockchain and cryptocurrency. Well, thank you for coming on. I can't wait to have you back again. Uh, we'll be in touch, all right? Yeah, thank you for having me. I really, really enjoyed it. All right, guys. We run out of time once again. But before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CS. 
hub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.